Uh, today we come to another passage that's unique to Luke. And as we said in this section we're looking at, we have a number of some of the most beloved passages in the scriptures that are found in the section we're in. And, and recall that the section we're in is often called Jesus's journey to Jerusalem or Luke's travel narrative. It started at Luke 9:51 when Jesus sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and his cross and says, I will not waver, that's where I'm going. I'll suffer any cost to redeem my people, which melts your heart. And it goes all the way to 1928 or thereabouts with Jesus's triumphal entry. And so you have this long section and it's arranged in a way that's just beautiful. Uh, we don't exactly always know where Jesus is, which I always love too, because sometimes we don't know where we are, right? And the life of discipleship is a journey, it's a way, but it can be confusing. And we ask why this long journey, why this way of relating to material? Well, the disciples have proven they need some intensive remedial education on what a follower of Jesus is, and I see myself there. I, I'm a slow study. And so Jesus gives another whole year and this whole section to train them on being a disciple. The emphasis is on his teaching, and he's focused on them because he has to prepare them to be those men who can lead his people. And he's teaching them what the way of the cross is. If he has set his face to go to Jerusalem, you and I in Christ on that firm foundation of the cross, the blood and righteousness of Christ, in him we are in that same way of the cross to give ourselves for others, emulating the one who gave himself for us. And so that's why we have this section, which is just a tremendous section. And so we're in a little portion of that, which goes from 1025 to 1113. And I'm gonna have a good time studying this, and I think you're gonna really appreciate it, uh, having this little section together. And so, we come to this passage that's you know, one of the most beloved passages of scripture, a precious portion. At the same time, incredibly convicting. But I gave all my material to Missy for the bulletin late in the week, and then I realized on Saturday, I can't preach it all today. And we were here a long time last Sunday, so I'm gonna to try to get us out at a reasonable time. But it merits so much attention. And so we're gonna look at 10, uh, 25 through 29 today. Hear God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with 
all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? The grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word endures forever. Let's ask God's blessing on it. Spirit of the living God who inspired scripture for our own upbuilding to correct, rebuke, and encourage, and to train in righteousness. We ask that you would do that for us today, that we might be indeed equipped for every good work. And we confess that our hearts would deflect both the grace and the admonitions And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would soften us to receive. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of mine and all of our hearts be pleasing to you in Christ's name, amen. So oftentimes we look at this chapter, and and I do, and... You know, I love, we love the parable of prodigal son so much, it seems like what the lawyer does is kind of introductory. It, it's, it's the framework for it. It's, it's uh, an introductory question that we, we breeze through to get to the real substance. But I've appreciated more this week that it's the main question. This is the question. And so really this is the most important portion of this wonderful section of scripture. It's the fundamental question of all. It's your fundamental question. It's the question that occupied the rabbis of the day, but not just those who taught, it's the question that occupied the people. Like, they talked about this. It makes me think of the the time of the Reformation, the 16th century. You know, historians would say, why was there such a sweeping revival across Europe? It's, It's because Europe was religious. Like, People ached for answers to fundamental questions, and God used it. And, and so this man um, elevates a question that's in the minds and hearts of the people. Uh, it occupied them, and they weren't able to put it off. And so my urging for us today is that we get to sit here and think about that question and ask ourselves, is this the question of questions for me? Like when I'm asking questions, is this the one that really occupies my mind and heart? And we have a host of questions that we deal with. And asking good questions is a wonderful art. But in all of it, is this the one? Our world lives on peripheral questions, really. Our world asks questions throughout the fall, who's gonna win the Super Bowl? That's the question our world is occupied with, as entertaining as that is, as interested as I am about it, it's just not the fundamental question 
that you need to think about. Young people and little people and old people and middle-aged people, this is our question. This is it. This is... This is Pilgrim's progress, looking and saying, what must I do to be saved? And leaving his house and saying, life, life, eternal life. You know, everything is subservient to this. And so, Luke has special emphases in, you know, salvation. Like the core of Lucan theology is salvation. He's gonna bring this up again. Word for word in chapter 18, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So are you asking this question, really? Is it it the margins of your consciousness or is this something that's deep, that's central in everything else you're dealing with? So eternal life is everything and a couple of quotes I've really appreciated of late about that. Uh, One, William Hendrickson, the commentator, just says eternal life, It's endless in duration and priceless in quality. Endless in duration, priceless in quality. You think of the psalmist, uh, Psalm 16, maybe the high point, you know. My heart is glad, my spirit rejoices, my body also will rest secure, for you will not let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I mean, a high watermark of of eternal life and what that entails, God himself. Like like the hymn we just sang, your love is a heaven of heavens to me. It lifts me up to glory for it lifts me up to thee. Uh, Daniel 12, 12 may be the most particular referent behind this. And, and in this a beautiful passage, you can write to the end of Daniel, and this is high passage of the Old Testament that says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And there's one that's arising to everlasting life and there's others that rise to everlasting contempt. And then he goes on to say those who are wise, that's true biblical wisdom, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so Revelation builds on that when it has all those descriptors for the people of God and, the, and how God views them as beautiful and dazzling like gems in, in, a, in a big big city wall. I mean, everlasting life, God, God himself. And so these quotes that I like, one is this, like Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven, a group of men are studying it, and he says, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. Now think of that, you have a lot of wants, a lot, and I do, a lot of wants and desires that are are really good. Just know that in the midst of that, what you really want, what they are awakening you to, is that you want God. Like when things aren't going your way, you're aching for the new heavens and the new earth. 
when one of your little idols has deceived you again and proved to be nothing but dust in your hands, what you're saying is, I want God. Like I was looking for God through this and it got me again. And so Paul David Tripp says it this way, and it's a longer quote, so try to, try to stay with me. Every human being is searching for God. Now, so you know, when you want to talk to somebody and you wonder if it's gonna get through, just know, God placed eternity in the hearts of men. Every human being is searching for God, though most don't know it. They just don't know. Much of human disappointment, despondency, anger, and hopelessness exists because we ask something to do for us what only God can do. Because we are spiritual beings, we name things as God that are not God. Because we are worshipers, we will always hook our hopes and dreams to something. Wired with imaginations, we envision what life will be like, calculating if this God, lowercase g, will come through for us. Children do it, husbands and wives do it, students do it, hourly workers do it, career people do it, pastors do it, so does everyone they pastor. Everyone is on a great life-shaping spiritual search. No one is excluded. Detached from God, our spirituality drives us into various forms of functional insanity. How's that? Have you experienced that? Like functionally, I'm insane. I'm choosing things that will not come through. I'm causing conflict because I'm seeking God in this and don't realize it. Careening from God to God and from disappointment to disappointment, we attach ourselves to yet another created thing and hope once again it will do for us what it can never do. We put God-like expectations on one another and we break under the burden. We keep hoping creation will do what it simply has no capacity to do for us and that will offer what God alone can. I mean, that is good stuff. And so this guy, he's going, the question, like he's asking the right question. Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Like to know God and all of his attributes, his peace, his love, his grace, my inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. What do I, what do, I do? The question's right. It's just that his attitude is wrong and his approach to the question is wrong. And so Luke lets us in on the lawyer's attitude because the lawyer aims to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to challenge Jesus. It's a purpose clause. Like he wants to test him. He doesn't ask this question like the Philippian jailer asked the question. You know, in desperation, seeing Paul and Silas singing in the dungeon of a prison. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's, it's not that heartfelt, I need what you have. Please just tell me and I'll do it. It's, I'm the expert in the law. A lawyer here is not... A lawyer like we think of lawyer, it's a Bible expert. It's a specialist in the Old Testament law. It's a guy who knows the word and its interpretation. And this lawyer is the official authority. Like he's the guy everybody recognized to have the right answers and he's confronting this unofficial authority. This, where did he come from? He's going all over the countryside teaching things. I'm gonna test and evaluate and vet him. And it's a different mindset. And so this passage, Lucas placed directly after the prior one, 
There's a relation there. We don't know if historically it happened right afterward, but there's a thematic link. And so we wonder why he puts it here, but in chapter 10, verse 21, he had talked about a certain wise and understanding person that God hides spiritual truth from because they're so self-sufficient and autonomous that they set themselves over God and his salvation. It looks like his attitude is, is that way. And it seems that he suspects Jesus is gonna be, give this innovative answer and that he'll be able to show him up from the law, show him up. But in Jesus' confronting mercy, though the lawyer challenges Jesus, Jesus turns it back on the lawyer and challenges him. And as you interact with God, that dynamic takes place. We challenge God with things, but then all of a sudden we realize God's actually challenging us. One scholar once said, I love the Bible because I don't just read it, it reads me. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus replies to that question, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Beautiful response. And he's saying, instead of some novel answer that I'm gonna pull out of nowhere, I'm gonna point you to God's word. I'm pointing you to what you are a scholar of, and I'm telling you what is written in the law. I want the written word of God, I don't want the oral tradition of man. He points him to the word and the testimony, God's word. You think that I'm standing loose to it, but I share your adherence and loyalty to God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word, which is our final authority in all matters of faith and life. I'm not doing anything unusual, I'm holding to the word. And at the same time, he looks at the lawyer and he also has that question, how do you read it? And it seems that Jesus is putting his finger on the lawyer and saying, I'm, I'm gonna check on how you are interpreting it. And so the lawyer answers from the Old Testament. And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's pulled together Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. Thoughtful Jewish scholars did this. And this was a fitting summary of the Ten Commandments. God's law to love God and love neighbor. So scholars had done that. And he, he gives voice to this. And these commands were incredibly well known. People talked like this. And in particular, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is called the Great Shema. Uh, Good Jews recited it twice a day. It was their creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Shema is from the word for hear, hear and obey it. So they knew it well. And so the lawyer responds, love God and love neighbor as the answer to his own question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love neighbor. And Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Simply love God with all your heart. 
the controlling center of your personality, the motivational motor of your life, make it love to God. Love God with all your soul, your, your life, the real you, the, the breath of life, the animating force, your consciousness. Love God with that. Love God with all your mind, all your thinking and reasoning and interpreting and planning, imagining. Love God with all your strength, your, your physical actions. I mean, love God with undivided loyalty, a single heart, utter devotion to God with every single fiber of your being. Do that. And to add to that, love your neighbor as yourself, meaning in the same way as you would want to be loved. With all the energy and all the attentiveness and all the care with which you meet your own needs. Do that and you will live. He doesn't say make progress in this and you will live. He doesn't say do your best at this and you will live. Nor does he say do better than others at this and you will live. Because every single intent of sin is outright rebellion against the holy God. Every taint of sin is a declaration of war. Like a holy God must punish all sin. We we have trouble realizing the gravity of the situation and the evilness of sin before a holy God and that sin is compounded with respect to the person we sinned against. And we sinned against the person and therefore sin becomes infinitely abhorrent. And it's hard for sinners to see the depth of the depravity of sin and take it into consideration. So. A holy God must punish it. And Jesus is saying, do this and live. Do it continuously without fail, without any error, without any fault, always. This is the pathway to inherit eternal life. It is. This was Adam's pathway to inherit life. This principle is codified in Leviticus 18.15. Paul brings it up in Galatians 3. It's just that principle, if a person does these commands, he shall live by them. That's the principle of scripture. If, if, I, if I obey God's law perfectly, I will enter into life. If you always, from the heart, from the start of your existence, were to love God and love your neighbor this way, yes, you would inherit eternal life. You would. The, the, the problem isn't the command. Romans 7, the command is holy, righteous, and good. It's, it's beautiful, fulfilling. It's the way God designed us to live. It's, it's life. That, that is life. If we lived like that, how contented we would be. The problem is with us. We can't do it. We don't do it. Since Adam's fall, we've curved 
in on ourselves. We, we love self. Our idol is me. Our idol is self. We love self with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and self as ourself. Like, it's self. It's the kingdom of self. We displaced God from his place and usurped his throne in the universe and in our lives. The command that should have brought life brought death, Romans 7. So Jesus in his severe grace has taken the Lord to task. It's gracious that he does that, to, to take off his blinders and expose him for what he is. Jesus is looking at him and saying, You may question if I take God's law seriously. Just know that I do. It's you who don't. The issue is you aren't really taking seriously the incredibly high standard of God's law. Lawyer, it's one thing to read it, interpret it, recite it. It's another thing to live it out. It's one thing to have it as a creed. It's another thing to put it into conduct. So if you're looking for something to do, do, don't kid yourself. Romans 3.20 comes into play. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You, you can't go that pathway. It's a legitimate pathway, but you, you've, you've disqualified yourself over and over and over again from that pathway. And what you need to do is I'm as I'm speaking to you is is realize that, come to your senses. What I want you to do is cry out like the publican later in the letter, God be merciful to me a sinner. Like see how you don't fulfill this command and therefore can't take this pathway. And then turn to God for his mercy. For a sinner that's the only pathway to inherit eternal life. And if you would see that, I'm standing right in front of you. Oh, but the sinful heart is deceptive. He's got the one in front of him that can take that pathway and can take that pathway for us. But instead of crying out for mercy and falling before him, he gets entrenched in his self-sufficiency and his own self-righteousness. It just goes so deep. And instead of breaking under God's holy standard, the lawyer doubles down and he seeks, notice how stirring this is, to justify himself. Which is the very same phrase you find throughout Paul's letters that you can't be justified by works of the law only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he He just has to try to justify himself and that's what we do when we're in an argument and you have a faint reflection of that. When you start defending your record before that person, it's just this instinctual drive to justify ourselves on our own and we know we can't reach God's holy standards, so what we do is we, we lower it, we make it more manageable. And that's what our culture does, we make it more manageable, something achievable. It's an effort at self-justification and a rejection of God's justification in the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of crying, be merciful to me, a sinner, and looking to Christ, this adept, skilled lawyer, to ease the voice of conscience, he asks Jesus a follow-up question. And who is my neighbor?
and you just see he's trying to crawl dad out of the situation. He's trying to limit it and minimize it and make it doable because he wants to do it on his own. And that's so convicting because we, it just comes up. But you see, it's so freeing to look at that compulsion of sinful man, of your heart and my heart, and to say what, what the law is pressing me to is to say, I can't do it. I need a redeemer. And that redeemer is standing right in front of the lawyer, engaging him and engaging you today. And so you come with that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he looks at you and says, you can't really do anything. You can inherit everything. And you see, the lawyer speaks a little better than he knows because he doesn't say, what can I do to earn eternal life? He says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And that's so rich, it comes straight out of the Old Testament. The only problem is that throughout the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, Pentateuch especially, it's God gives an inheritance. It's something that God gives. So Austin got baptized this morning. And in the next verse, after God says, I will be God to you, he says, I'm gonna take you into your inheritance and I pledge to do so. It's not just the terrain of Palestine, it's that, but it's looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. It's looking to God and all God is, as God is life himself, as John 17 says, in you is life and life abundant. So part of the reason I couldn't progress to the Good Samaritan is that this whole idea of inheritance means a lot. And so we siblings have inherited a little bit from my father. And it means a lot, you know? And we got a little family plot in Louisiana. And I, I appreciate having that more than I thought I would. But you see, you have a plot in, in glory already. And I just think of the attitude of the Pharisee saying, what do I have to do to get that? And what would my dad think if I approached him that way? Even more, what if I was trying to do the minimum to get something out of him? And I think of God, you know, he's, he has all of this to give us. Like he, he wants to give you Life, life. What does he ask of us? To receive a gift of faith. To recognize we can't achieve it. But the heir of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, is standing in front of us and saying, you can be a co-heir with me. Receive me by faith as your redeemer. I will do, I will love the Lord 
my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, my neighbor as myself. I'm going to Jerusalem to do that, to glorify God on the cross and to pour out my love for sinners. And as you place your faith in me, that's yours. And when that's yours, you become an adopted son and daughter of the king and you enter now into the quality of eternal life with the sure prospect that one day you'll be standing on that plot of land that already awaits you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Would you receive the Son by faith alone, in Christ alone? It's a gift to you today. Amen. Let's stand.